Hello, everyone. It's Angeline Chen. Welcome to Immigration Today, where I interview leaders, advocates, experts, and volunteers in immigration and immigrant rights on the issues, their experiences, and how you can make a difference. Today, we have Erica Pinheiro, who is the Litigation and Policy Director for Al Otro Lalo, a binational nonprofit organization providing legal and humanitarian support to indigent refugees, deportees, and other migrants in the US and Tijuana. Erica leads her organization's efforts in filing class action lawsuits challenging the Trump administration's attacks on the US asylum system, on unfair labor practices, and severe medical neglect in immigration detention facilities. Her team has reunified many separated families, including parents who were deported without their children and has freed dozens of asylum seekers detained uh, at the border. Her work has been frequently featured in national and international media outlets. Her TED talk about the border reached over 2 million views. I had the pleasure of knowing her through Rise to Reunite, a volunteer group I co-founded to help reunite families separated at the border. Erica is my personal hero. She is my hero because she and her team are literally saving lives, saving and assisting the most vulnerable population, not only providing legal services, but also humanitarian aid, like buying diapers and milk for babies and you know, grocery cards for parents and providing urgent medical care and all for the migrants in these shelters in Tijuana during this pandemic. Erica, welcome to my first podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be here. Oh, thank you. Um, we're just going to get right to it because we have a lot to okay. talk about. Okay. So you have many, many years of, not too many, you're not that old, but you have many <laughs> years <laughs> of helping immigrants, even before working for El Otro Lado. I would love to hear about where your passion for helping immigrants stems from. Well, I started doing immigration advocacy kind of by mistake. Um, <laughs> it was just random. I graduated college in 2001. And so a few months after I graduated, 9-11 happened. Um, so the economy tanked and you know things were really uncertain for a while. And I was living on the East Coast at the time and just kind of applying for jobs all over the country. And because I, I speak Spanish and Portuguese, I, immigration law seemed like a fit. I qualified for those kinds of jobs. Um, I remember interviewing for a job in San Francisco and I was offered the job a few days later and moved out to California about two weeks later. So that was in 2002. And ever since then, I've been working with asylum seekers. I went to law school in the interim and continued my work with um, asylum seekers and really started doing detained work after law school. Um, so over the past decade, um, most of my work has been with detained immigrants and unaccompanied kids. Um, right when Trump was elected, I moved to the border and, you know, it's been a whirlwind since then. But I think initially I got into it, like I said, just because of the language skills and also, um, you know, both my parents are immigrants. They're both from Portugal. Um, they both left Portugal because it was a fascist dictatorship at the time. And, you know, we, growing up, we were always around other immigrant communities. And so I, you know, just felt this natural affinity 
um, to working with people in the immigrant community, but also recognizing I have a ton of privilege as a US citizen and really wanted to leverage that to help people. Um, after seeing family separation and everything that's happened at the border, I think my motivations have changed. If, you know, before it was, I think, more personal and now it's become more structural and political because I realize, you know, if we keep the systems we have now, people are going to continue to suffer. So that's what really keeps me going these days. Yeah, what a journey, right? I mean, at this point, you can get any job you want um, with your... <laughs> pedigree and background, but you you choose to, to stay in this work. And, and I, I can't even imagine how hard it is. And and I wanted to ask you, I, you're a, a mother of a uh, almost three-year-old, right? Almost three? Yes. How does how did that change, like being a mom? Like, how did that change in your work and, and reaction to these policies? Well, my son came at a really difficult time. Um, you know, I wouldn't change anything, of course, like he's such a blessing and, you know, the best thing that's ever happened to me. I know a lot of moms say that, but it's true. Um, but I got pregnant with him in June or July of 2017. And that was when we first started seeing family separation at the California border. By November of that year, it had become large scale. And then of course, by the time he was born, it had increased exponentially. We were seeing separated families, you know, every day at the border. So it was, um, I just remember going into the detention facilities being hugely pregnant and talking to parents who had been separated from kids as young as 18 months old. And I don't know if it was, I mean, I'm sure it was partially the pregnancy hormones and, you know, having that feeling of like, you know, carrying a child and, and thinking about how I would feel if he were taken from me, um, that really motivated me to help these families. Um, you know, unfortunately, I didn't get a lot of time off after he was born because it was just, you know, caravans were coming and families were being separated. And, you know, by the time I came back from maternity leave, which was only a few weeks, zero tolerance was in full swing, right? So it was just, um, you know, dealing with all of that while trying to mother an infant was challenging to say the least, but, you know, he's a really good kid. He sleeps. He came with me on all my little journeys to, to help these families. He was there when, you know, we brought the 29 deported parents back to Mexicali. Um, so yeah, I, I like to think he's just growing up as a cool social justice baby. <laughs> and hopefully he'll continue to fight the good fight as he gets older. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, you know, people always say, oh, you're a superstar, superwoman, super mom, you do everything. And, and, and I'm sure on your end, it was just crazy trying to juggle it all and trying to be a mom and then bringing him with you. Is it safe? Is, you know, and oh, I, I, I can't even imagine. And I've met him a couple of times too, the cutie. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. I'm really lucky to have a supportive partner, you know, like, I couldn't do it without him. So um, we're definitely a team. And he, my partner also works with Al Otro Lado. And so it's just, you know, Tony's our organizational mascot in many ways. <laughs> he's grown up oh, with, with Al Otro Lado. And yeah, he's really involved in all our work. He's right now gone with his dad to um, 
help arrange to distribute formula and diapers to some of the migrant moms who are stuck on the Mexican side of the border. So, oh my god, yeah, he's growing up with those kids. It's great, you know. He's exposed to a lot of different cultures and everything. Um, but yeah, it's definitely challenging, <laughs> especially yeah. during a pandemic. Yeah, you know, during a pandemic, and and he's probably. Um, you know, with you or your partner all day right now, right? Because he's only almost three. Yeah. It's, you're not, you don't have, you're not bringing the daycare or anything like that during the pandemic. No. So, yeah. We have know. a really, um, so our organization um, really tries to involve affected um, people in our work and, and give them leadership roles. And, you know, our mission is really driven by the people affected by immigration policies. So, we're really lucky to have um, a Salvadoran family helping us in the Tijuana office. They came as part of one of the caravans a while ago and, and decided they came actually during family separation. They have some, they have small children and decided, you know, they didn't want to risk separation. So they decided to stay in Tijuana. So now there are other family in the quarantine pod and my son's definitely any Spanish he speaks is Salvadoran Spanish, which is awesome. <laughs> but awesome. <laughs> that's like the people we're spending the most time with. So thankfully, he has other babies to play with um, from that family. But it's um, yeah, it's been great. Uh, we're really lucky to have them with us here in Tijuana. Oh, that's awesome! That's awesome. Um, you were also on a super secret government watch list. And I know there's a lawsuit against the government for that. And, and particularly because at one point you were stopped at the border trying to go from the US to Mexico and you were forced to return to San Diego um, when, you're, when your partner and an and infant child were in, were in Mexico. How was that experience like knowing that you couldn't get to your partner and your baby? Well, it was really difficult. Um, the day that it happened, it was interesting because the reason I was renewing my visa was to travel to the southern border of Mexico and help parents who had been separated from their children um, to be able to return to the border and seek asylum and reunify with their kids. And so that was the reason why I crossed the border and asked for a new visa, which was approved before they realized I was on this watch list. And it was also the first day of MPP in Tijuana. So it was the first day it had been rolled out. So it was interesting time overall. When it happened, I couldn't believe it was happening when it was happening. It just felt so surreal. And you know, being detained and interrogated obviously wasn't a pleasant experience. Um, I was able to get a visa to come back to Mexico probably like a month later. And then now I'm a permanent resident in Mexico. So, you know, all's well that ends well, I guess. But, you know, as horrible as that experience was, um, it's nothing compared to what my clients went through, right? Like I wasn't separated, like our family wasn't separated for that long. I now have legal status in the country that wouldn't let me enter. And we're working with families that have been separated from their kids for, you know, two, three years. And even under the Biden administration, there's still no clear path for them to come back and reunify with their kids. And, you know, I can tell you people 
generally who are deported from the United States certainly aren't coming back in a month. You know, they're years, if ever, most people can never come back. So I recognize I had a lot of privilege. I had a lot of connections, was able to like advocate at the highest levels of Mexican government. There's a lawsuit, the media, like all of that. Most people don't have that. So, you know, as horrible as the experience was, I recognize that I had a lot of privilege and how it, you know, resolved itself. So. Right. I mean, if anybody could solve the, that issue, it would be you, right? With all, yeah. all the support <laughs> that you have. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, for me too, by, from watching what you do, from watching the news, you know, it, it really affects me as a mother. Like my son was three years old. Um, when I brought a group of immigration attorney moms to the border uh, to volunteer for you all El Otro Lado, um, to accompany families to seek uh, asylum at the port of entry. And my son was three at the time. And that day when we went with, with a 17 year old girl, her sister and, and her three-year-old, you know, and I saw my son and him, except my son is much more misbehaved. Um, <laughs> at, you know, we couldn't get her in, we couldn't get them in. And we waited eight hours on the concrete, right at the gate. And I, I felt so helpless, you know, and, and it's like, I have this privilege, you know, I, nothing could happen to me, but I couldn't even get these people through. And also the thought of, of if, what, if this was happening to me, you know, this, this experience yeah. changed my life that day at the border changed my life. Like the thought of, if I was trying to save myself and my son from whatever I was fleeing from violence, whatever, I mean, to leave my home with like a backpack and trying to go through to go to a country that's supposed to protect us and is supposed to be just, but then reject us. And not only that, even if we got through the thought of like my son being you know, taken away from me, put in foster care and me being de deported, it's, you know, you can't even make up a story like that. And it, it was, it was so intense and traumatic for me. And, and, and I just can't even imagine going through that, but that's what keeps me going. And I, I feel like, of course, if I wasn't a mom, I'd still feel horrible and, and, and want to change things. But there's something that, that, you know, because I'm a mom, because I could see my child and what I would do for him, it, it just changes things. It makes it even more intense, you know? Um, Definitely. So let's, let's go to a little bit about what's happening at the border now. Um, are the borders closed to asylum seekers right now? Yes. Yeah. So um, there, you know, tr Trump made a big deal when he said he was closing the borders because of public health reasons. And so I think a lot of people picture it like no one's crossing the border. That could not be further from the truth. Um, I think right now, just at the San Ysidro port of entry here in Tijuana, San Diego, I think about 50,000 people a day cross. Um, it used to be before the pandemic, it was around 90,000 people a day. So basically US citizens and permanent residents and people with work visas in the United States can cross uh, freely. And there's some other exceptions to the CDC order like medical appointments, things like that. Um, I also see a ton of Americans every weekend come to Mexico to party and drink and you know, go to the beach, whatever. Um, and that's 
especially true when the bars are closed in California and open down here. So, you know, from a public health standpoint, the border closure isn't helping stop the spread of COVID either here in Mexico or in the United States. So it does affect our asylum seekers and people with tourist visas. So just a word about the latter. Um, there's a lot of people with tourist visas who have family in the United States and they haven't seen their family since March of 2020. So, you know, we think about family separation, there's all types of family separation happening with immigration. So that's just a small piece. Um, but I think for asylum seekers, obviously the impact has been much worse. Um, so there's two, well, three groups of people who've really been affected. So there's people who were in MPP. So they had already been forced to wait in Mexico for US asylum hearings. I think there's probably around 10,000 in Baja, California. And, um, you know, since March 23rd, there's been no court. Um, you know, no one's been processing for their hearings. So people have just been waiting in Mexico. Um, the conditions are precarious, especially for people who aren't in shelters, um, which is the majority. And, you know, there's some, you know, when we think about the camp in Matamoros, just talking about the Texas border for a second, like the conditions there have been horrific and people are waiting longer than a year, some for two years, right? Because um, like I mentioned earlier, it was January 29th, um, 2019, when they implemented MPP here. So it's been two years today. Is today the anniversary? Anyway, we're oh my gosh, Monday, so we're around the two year mark, right? Mm -hmm. um, so people have been here for two years. And um, so they're still here. And the people who are not in shelters have a lot of them have lost their jobs. Some of them have lost housing. So we're seeing an increase in homelessness. Um, you know, people can't feed their kids. That's why we've, you know, created all these humanitarian programs. And then there's people who are on the wait list to seek asylum in the United States. So they stopped processing names off the list on March 23rd and they actually stopped putting names on the list. So there's all the people who've been on the list now for over a year, also waiting in Mexico. Um, th that system disproportionately affects black migrants, right? Cause they, a lot of them, you know were already on the list or came after the list was closed and couldn't even get on it. And so they're just stuck here and they face a lot of discrimination in Mexico. Um, and now there's people who are arriving uh, recently, especially after the hurricanes that absolutely ravaged Central America. So there's been a recent wave of migration as well. And there's just no legal path uh, for people to present themselves and ask for asylum at this point. And so a lot of people are falling into the hands of smugglers and criminal groups. Like there was a case recently where they found 19 burned bodies of Guatemalan migrants in the state of Tamaulipas. Oh I know, I, I saw that CBP had found two separate trailers stuffed with migrants at the Texas border over, I think it was like in the past week. So as, because the border is closed, you know, there's still desperate people who need protection in the United States. And because they're not able to get it, they're forced into more and more dangerous situations and, you know, really being exploited by criminal groups. And so, yeah, the situation is pretty dire. And as far as we know, Biden doesn't have any plans to lift that CDC order, so. Can you go into a little bit what NPP is, Erica, for those who don't know? Sure. Um, so 
MPP stands for Migrant Protection Protocols, which couldn't be more Orwellian because it is a program that forces people to wait in Mexico for asylum hearings in the United States. Um, it was implemented by the Trump administration in January of 2019. And since then they forced over 65,000 people to wait in Mexico for their asylum hearings in the US. I know groups like Human Rights First have documented well over a thousand migrants who've been um, victim, they, or they've been assaulted, they've been raped, they've been murdered in some cases. And I can tell you just, you know, from working with migrants and MPP, that's got to be a small percentage of the total number of people who've actually suffered harm in Mexico, because generally, you know, instead of helping people, the police here are another group that victimizes migrants. Um, so we've even seen cases of attempted kidnapping or kidnapping where the police are, are not helpful. So you can imagine that migrants are generally not going to report those those types of crimes. Um, you know, I think it's at the beginning it was around one percent of people who had access to counsel. I think by the end, you know, by March of 2020, I, I think we'd gotten it up to maybe around five percent of people who had access to counsel. But having a lawyer makes it ten times more likely that you're going to win relief in your case. Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, can you imagine living this precarious existence in Mexico where you're facing danger every single day, you might not have enough to eat. You certainly don't have an office to go to in most cases to like prepare your paperwork or someone to translate it. Like everything has to be in English in court, right? There's mm -hmm. all these barriers, um, to actually even getting to court, preparing your case, et cetera. So, um, the approval rate was dismal in that program for asylum. And there were a lot of people who never showed up to court. They weren't getting notice of court hearings. Um, you know, people might have suffered some assault or even been killed. You know, there's just all of these barriers for people actually accessing the asylum system through that program. And it's just resulted in massive human rights violations. So the Biden administration has pledged to end MPP, um, mm -hmm. but how, they help or whether they help the people who are still stuck in Mexico still remains to be seen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're going to see what kind of announcement he's going to be making in, in, in processes. Um, what do you recommend him to do to streamline the asylum process? Well, right now we have the back a backlog of processing, which includes the MPP folks and the people who are on the list and the people who haven't been able to get on the list. Before Trump slowed processing at ports of entry, asylum seekers could walk up to the port and be processed. And mm -hmm. I think the goal should be to get back to that point, but there's a lot of work to do before we can get there. And it's going to be very difficult dealing with Customs and Border Protection and, and just the Department of Homeland Security in general, because that's an agency that's been politicized. Um, you know, they're very pro-Trump, very anti-immigrant. They're already chafing against Biden's policies to restrict deportations, et cetera. So there's a lot of challenges, but I think the best 
plan of action would be to process all the people who have been waiting through a department of state mechanism through the consulates because um, the consulate the department of state has not been politicized to the same extent as the department of homeland security um you know there's a more opportunity to work remotely rather than you know standing outside a port of entry for eight hours during what seems like the height hopefully is the height of the pandemic hopefully we get better from here um but the visa system administered by the Department of State is online. So we could work remotely, we can get people's information in, and it wouldn't necessitate a large increase of resources going to DHS. Like they really have enough money, they don't need it. Mm -hmm. um, they could repurpose their existing resources to process asylum seekers, but I think as much as we can do remotely and through the Department of State, the better. Um, and you know, just to give a sense of the scale, I, most estimates put the number of MPP folks still in Mexico around 25 to 30,000. Mm -hmm. And then there's probably another 20,000 who are on the list or, or waiting. But like I said, they process 50,000 people a day just at one port of entry. So we really, we can do this. It's not yeah. as much as it seems. And, you know, there's many people like I know you and many other attorneys ready, willing, and able to help with this and you know a lot of border communities who are um, ready to receive asylum seekers who've been stuck in Mexico so I know there's the popular will is there you know we can marshal the resources but we just need the political will to <laughs> manifest itself and you know we we have a lot of work to do I hope that people listening who want this to happen can call their representatives um, and try to push it along because I think we're running into kind of a political wall here, right, um, mm -hmm. in terms of getting this process going. Yeah, you know, a lot of people think, oh, Biden's now here, everything's going to be solved and everything's going to be great. And no, we have to advocate more than ever. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's not going to, oh, now it's easy peasy and we can relax. No, there's, like you said, you know, thousands and thousands of people are stuck in Mexico and this process wasn't, a lot of these processes were not new to Trump either. So um, we really do need to advocate. Now, there are still um, many families who are separated during the zero tolerance policy. Um, Biden says he's creating a task force to help reunite the families. Do you have an idea of what he means by that? who will be in it i have i have an idea um so the biden transition team really engaged with advocates even before he took office but a lot of the meetings and i was lucky to be in a lot of those meetings um they were really in listening mode so really just hearing from advocates what we thought the plan should be and just to give you a sense of the overall ask from you know from our side is that you know all the families be reunified the ones who were deported should be allowed to return there should be some legal status independent of asylum and there should be resources dedicated to helping families re reintegrate right because it's not physical reunification is step one <laughs> and then mm -hmm. there's you know all of the healing that has to happen from the trauma of separation itself and you know, not to mention that unless the Biden administration does give some kind of work permit or something like that, it can take a year 
or more to get a work permit through the mm -hmm. asylum system. So, you know, just making sure that people have the resources they need to survive. So that's been the ask. Um, in terms of the task force, there have been a lot of people, a lot of organizations, a lot of advocates involved in the discussions. Um, what's being proposed is that it be, you know, obviously the agencies involved and actually uh, effectuating reunification would be involved, but you know, we're hoping to have attorneys, doctors, um, you know, mental health professionals, and hopefully the some affected families themselves, because they're really the ones who know best how this should go, what the needs are, et cetera. So um, that's been the proposal. We're not sure exactly what it's going to look like, but I, I certainly hope that affected families will be at the forefront. Yeah, that would be really important. I mean, it's their experience. <laughs> um, yeah. And in terms of funding, you know, I think that's one of the really important part is whether or not the government is going to pay for all of, you know, the reunification efforts, because I know that it costs thousands of dollars to find these parents. Some of them are have still not been found um, and bringing them here. And, and I hope the government will fund that. I don't know if they know how much it costs. <laughs> I, yeah, they haven't funded any of it in the past. And that's really important because I think a lot of people believe that, you know, the government has tried to reunify the families they have located and that the only reason why they're still family separated is because they haven't been found. That could not be further from the truth. Of course, there's the five, 600 families that have not been contacted, but there's, I, I would estimate probably around a thousand who, are still separated and we do have contact with hundreds of those parents hundreds of those children mm -hmm. um the government has so far done everything they can to block reunifications we've had to fight for the few dozen we have been able to mm -hmm. achieve um you know we've done it sometimes without you know the permission of the government just showing up at the border with the parents mm -hmm. and so i think a lot of people naively think well, now Biden's here, they're just going to let all these people come back. But some of the leaks that I've been seeing coming out say that, you know, even with the initial plan, they're not going to announce whether or not they're going to let deported parents come back. And I think wow. that that's because there's still this deterrence mindset, right? The whole reason why we had family separation was to deter asylum seekers from coming to the United States. Mm -hmm. You know, I think Biden, the Biden administration might be reluctant to just let the deported parents come back because they think it will encourage people to come to the border or whatever, you know, they, they still have this deterrence mindset. And while they have that deterrence mindset, we're really not going to see real change in the immigration system and real change in the asylum system because deterrence means you torture people and you you make it so miserable for them that they don't want to seek asylum in the United States. So family separation is, you know, the worst, one of the worst ways that you can do that, but there's mm -hmm. so many other policies like family detention, like MPP, like mm -hmm. metering, like, you know, all of these things that Biden, Obama, Trump have done mm -hmm. to try to deter asylum seekers. And until they get out of that mindset, you know, we're not going to see families reunified. We're not going to see real change. So that's, you know, our responsibility as, as citizens, as people who can use our voice. And we have to, again, how important it is to continue to talk to our Congress people and advocate and speak out on social media. Um, 
And I feel like that's the only way to change their mindset is to know what the people actually feel. You know? Yeah, exactly. Um, there, uh, oh, you have reunited multiple families. How many you have you reunited? Ooh, so in terms of bringing deported parents back, I think it's been 36 or 37 at this point. Um, Congratulations. And thanks. <laughs> it was a team effort. Um, but when family separation started, we were working you know, at the border and most of those parents weren't deported. They were detained and we were able to get them released from custody. So I think there was like another dozen or so like that. Mm -hmm. um, we also work with parents who are separated from US citizen children at the border. So generally that's someone who lived in the United States, had a child, went back to their home country and then had problems there and, and wanted to seek protection in the United States. And gener And this is still happening that CBP will take the US citizen child and put them in foster care, detain and try to deport the parent. So we were able mm -hmm. to stop a lot of those separations or get the parent out of detention. And um, yeah, we have, we're still working with dozens of parents who are in Central America trying to get them back to their kids, so. No, but uh, congratulations, honestly, for just, it's so hard to do. You know, I know that you fly to Guatemala or El Salvador to try to find them and, and just logistically and financially, you know, just so difficult. So um, thank you for, for that. Um, there are 14,195 immigrants in ICE custody, and it looks like about 8,000 have gotten COVID-19. Does it look like the Biden administration may release them? In your uh, opinion. I mean, I hope there will be a reduction, a permanent reduction in well, let me preface this by saying, I don't think immigration detention should exist at all. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it serves any social purpose, you know, and even people with criminal convictions have already served their time. And so unless you think someone should get a longer sentence for being born in another country, then immigration detention doesn't really make sense. Um, so, but I do think that the Biden administration will keep it to a certain extent, at least for probably based on what I'm seeing out of the admin so far, probably for very recent border crossers and for individuals who they think pose a national security threat or some kind of public safety threat. Um, unfortunately, if ICE is given the discretion to determine what that means, it can have a very broad application. I've seen them mm -hmm. argue that someone with a 10-year-old DUI is a public, public safety threat or someone who has been arrested but never convicted of a crime as a public safety threat. So, I mean, it's, I'm hopeful, but realistic, um, given that we're dealing with ICE. And if ICE, like I said, if they're given any discretion, it's going to be a battle to get every single person out. Um, you know, there's been some encouraging movement in Biden um, declining to renew private prison contracts, at least for the Department of Justice. They haven't mm -hmm. made any announcements as to whether they're going to do the same for DHS or ICE custody, but the majority of ICE facilities are private facilities. Mm -hmm. It's a money-making venture that's also really important to understand. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some of our class actions, 
address the issue of slave labor practices in mm -hmm. ICE detention where people, even though they're not being held for criminal punishment are being forced to work for a dollar a day or even nothing. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's a horrific system. I, I think we're seeing some indications of positive movement toward a reduction, but I wouldn't expect them to just let everybody out. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's like too good to be true almost, right? Oh my goodness. We, yeah. <laughs> we have a case who's a detained and just, and this person has the resources to even hire us and the, the games that these officers play with you, you know, they're, oh, we're not in, the officer's not in today, call tomorrow. And then you call them the next day and they're not in and they're not, like you, you, you're getting the same, you know, you already told me this the whole week. I'm like, okay, finally, I'll, you know, I'll get you to talk to the deportation officer. And then, oh, where's your G28? And we already sent it, you know, the client already signed it. We already, I mean, it's just like, send it to me again, send it to me again. And just these games that they play, like they just, it's like they just want to keep them there, you know, just want to keep them there. And so it's such a horrible mm -hmm. process. Um, so there, there are- Yeah, we've- um... Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to mention we have a class action uh, that we are an organizational plaintiff. It's called Freyhat v. ICE, and it's focused on disabled and medically vulnerable people in ICE detention. So that litigation has helped release many migrants from ICE detention, those who are disabled and medically vulnerable. And it's been um, really helpful in getting people out during COVID. But we saw um, recently it came to light that ICE was actually holding people in violation of the court orders that came out of Freyhat because um, they thought they would be able to deport them imminently, wow. you know, including people who have COVID, which is just like devastating for the receiving country, especially if they don't have the medical infrastructure to deal with spread. Um, so that's just another example, like you're saying, ICE plays games, like even where there's a court order telling them they have to release someone they want to hold on. And, and like I mentioned earlier, there's a profit motive there, but there's also, you know, this idea that the migrants being held in detention aren't fully human or don't deserve rights. Um, so, I mean, we just have a lot to overcome before we can get everybody free. Right, right. So there were 3 million people who were deported under the Obama administration. That, was, that came out in a New York Times article. I was practicing law at that time. I feel that the first four years of his administration was worse than the last four. Um, the second half, I felt it was better. There was less uh, deportation, but it's still a lot. And what do you think the Biden administration will do in terms of the, just if they're going to deport as many and, and how, and what do you think about that? Well, I think one mistake that, well, let me put it this way. I know a lot of people recognize that Obama, you know, was the deporter in chief and deported millions of people, but, and that Trump was worse in so many ways than the Obama mm -hmm. administration. Um, but there's a real dividing line in a lot of people's minds about what happened before Trump and during Trump, right? And I can tell you from, working both with families separated at the border and families who've been separated by deportation, 
because, you know, the parent was deported, kids stayed in foster care in the United States or with another parent, whatever the situation was, it's still family separation. You know, Mm -hmm. Obama, by deporting millions of people, separated millions of families. And a lot of those people are never going to see their kids again. And there's no, you know, massive advocacy push for them to come back. Um, It's not the same. The public doesn't think of it the same way as people separated at the border, but in many ways it is the same. Mm I saw in Biden's proposed immigration bill that he wanted to provide some limited relief for people who'd been deported during the Trump administration. Um, because I think politically, it's we haven't really seen a real reckoning with mm-hmm. the Biden administration, really recognizing and taking ownership of the mistakes that they made. Um, so I hope that we could extend protections for previously deported people to those who were deported under the Obama administration. There's other legal changes that would need to take place for many of them to have any kind of meaningful relief. Um, But so far, I'm not seeing that. I'm not seeing that sort of reckoning happening of like recognizing how many lives were shattered during the Obama administration and and that we need to make the effort to repair it repair those lives and and reunify those families as well. Yeah, no, totally. Thank you for sharing that. Um, It is a dividing line. You know, it's it's a sensitive topic when you talk about what happened during Obama administration. Um, So for all of us who are stuck at home, uh, which should be most people, uh, everyone, um, how can we help? So uh, Al Otro Lado has moved all of our services to be remote. We have remote volunteers. Uh, we accept remote volunteers. So if you go to our website, uh, alotrolado.org and you go to get involved, you'll see a link there for the remote volunteer application. And I would really encourage people to sign up because if and when there is uh, an effort to process people in, uh, who have been stuck in Mexico, we will need remote volunteers. And you know, I'm hoping that the government sets up some kind of remote system for us to process these applications, but we're going to need a lot of people helping. So please, especially if you speak Spanish and you have some immigration experience, but even if you don't, um, please sign up at that link and you know, hopefully we can integrate you into our work. Um, you know, like you mentioned earlier, and I think I mentioned as well, So far, the federal government isn't giving any funding to help reunify families or process people in. Um, So, you know, your donations are obviously appreciated to help both with the legal work, but we also, um, if you go to our our giving page, you'll see that we have a campaign um, called the Migrant Solidarity Fund. So that helps us provide direct support to migrants, like buying diapers, formula, emergency rent support, paying for surgeries that migrants can't access either in the US or in Mexico, paying for medication, um, a lot of other things, whatever comes up, whatever our clients need, um, we we're, we're wanna really be there for them uh, in that way. So that's how your donations would be used. Um, and calling your representatives, call your Congressman, call your Senator, please. Um, there's a bill that's been introduced by Castro and Blumenthal to reunify separated families. So if you live in either of their jurisdictions, oh my God, please call them, (laughs) you know, call your, your other representatives to support that bill. Um, even your local, um, government, like I just, 
testified before the California State Assembly, and the state is considering um, providing additional resources to help separated families. I know LA County has done the same. And so even at the local level, um, if you push your representatives to do something to help migrant families or people who are you know, coming into the United States now, I think it can really um, have a material impact on people's lives. Yeah, you know, we always, they, people hear, oh, call your representatives, but it's not going to matter my phone call, but it really does. Like these representatives have to, yeah, they have to record, write down every single person who calls. And even the Democrats, you know, they need to hear from their constituents. Um, it's, it's, it's really, really important. And, and if everybody's doing it, you know, they're going to have to do something. Um, yeah. Yeah, thank you. And yeah, don't forget. So the Migrant Solidarity Fund, that's great. Um, eventually, hopefully, when this pandemic is completely over, you know, I could bring all my volunteers again with RISE mm -hmm. and help. But we're, we're helping, we're going to help remotely. We're always pushing it out. Um, our law firm, Clark Hill, we already have a couple of attorneys that are going to take pro bono cases from Nora. Um, yay. So, yeah, yay. So, thank you. No, of course, it's nothing. Um, so, you know, Erica, thank you so much for your time. I know you're super busy and um, really appreciate you sharing your thoughts and a little bit about your personal life as well with us. No, thank you so much for having me and thank you for the years that you've supported our organization and um, all the times you've come to Tijuana. Like, I, I mean, we absolutely adore you. I'm never too busy for you, Angeline. So, Aww. and I'm really happy about your podcast. So congratulations. Oh. <laughs> and I know it's gonna be great. I hope you get a lot of listeners. And um, yeah, thank you for all the work you're doing. And I hope all your listeners can be inspired by you because you know, I can say you've really um, been with us from the beginning, you know, when we didn't have anything, when it was just, you know, being funded by GoFundMes <laughs> and, <laughs> and volunteers. Um, and you've really just helped us, you know, get to where we are today. And, and I know you've brought so many people um, down and, and just made so many people aware of what's happening at the border. So, you know, we, we just can't thank you enough. And I'm so happy to talk with you today. Oh, thank you, Eric. I'm going to cry. <laughs> no. <laughs> Good thing this is audio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Thanks, Erica. So we'll see you soon. Or talk to you okay. soon. All right. Thank you so much. This podcast is intended for general education and informational purposes only and should not be regarded as either legal advice or a legal opinion. You should not act upon or use this publication or any of its contents for any specific situation. Recipients are cautioned to obtain legal advice from their legal counsel with respect to any decision or course of action contemplated in a specific situation. Clark Hill PLC and its attorneys provide legal advice only after establishing an attorney-client relationship through a written attorney-client engagement agreement. This recording does not establish an attorney-client relationship with any recipient.